Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. So welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. We spent a lot of time last week looking at some of the brain mechanisms that contribute to the development of chronic pain, but also looking at the interface between pain and addiction. It's a fascinating area of pain study now. And I think what's important is that we can use some of this information to help patients move forward, but also to understand how some of their habits and behaviors can actually hold them back from full recovery. And obviously, the important thing to recognize is that it is a process trying to change behavior. We can only look at ourselves, right? I mean, we all have something that we wish could do differently. So for many of our patients who have been using strategies to manage their complex pain, it's very difficult to give those strategies up. And in fact, it is a process. I always use this. I love this phrase, knowledge is possibility. It only has power if we use it. And the caveats to those is that we are ready to use it or know how to use it. So this is where pain self-management can be useful, but many patients are not ready to go to pain self-management. So a lot of the work we do is actually at the clinical bedside. So what I want to do uh, in this podcast is continue our talk around the uh, science of pain and how our understanding of this is helping us to minimize risk, but also to look at future possibilities around finding new strategies, finding new pharmacotherapies, finding new ways of helping patients manage their complex pain. So when we look at the pain pathway factors, some of the most important things, I think, are to recognize that we really have two circuitries within the nervous system. One is what I call the higher learning circuitry, which is really coming from the central nervous system. The other circuitry is what we call the nociceptive circuitry. So when we think about acute pain, for example, the nociceptive circuitry is very, very important in terms of warning us uh, when a trigger happens, but also helping us to follow the progression of healing as well as uh, understanding that pain will eventually shut off. What happens when pain becomes persistent is that we start to get these changes that we'll talk about around the immune system, but also we start to get these changes where the higher learning circuitry, which brings that complex emotion, brings the memory, the changes in sleep, and the stress or survival response, so it starts to take over from that nociceptive circuitry. Is the nociceptive circuitry still important? Absolutely. But it's actually quite interesting, too, looking at sleep. So we know that sleep often eludes patients with persistent pain, and there's a number of reasons why that may be. Oftentimes, uh, it's more uh, the brain itself may be flaring up more at night, especially depending on what the patient is doing through the day. But also, we know that the normal kind of fluctuation in cortisol, which is that part of that stress response, starts to go down at night. And this may be another thing that uh, scientists feel may be triggering more pain at nighttime. There's also the important aspect of patients who have had significant, and we talked about this last week, around adverse childhood experiences. One of the questions I love asking patients is if they were, especially when sleep comes up, if they were ever a good sleeper as a kid. And why that's important is that sometimes it can uh, uncover some significant past trauma in childhood. Because what can happen in childhood, especially around sleep, is that 
most kids are very reluctant to go to sleep if there's tremendous disruption happening within the home, say parents who are drinking and fighting, or if there was some, uh, God forbid, sexual abuse that was happening, is that these kids will stay awake to stay alive. So it becomes very difficult to find calm and to help them get to sleep. And often these kids are acting out through the day. But when they're old enough, they start to reach for substances to get that brain to calm. So as soon as they're able to access those substances, and the most common we often see initially is alcohol or cigarettes. And we know that in patients with complex pain in particular, is that there is a higher incidence of smoking as well as alcohol uh, use uh, disorder in that population. So it's quite fascinating, actually. The studies that have been done this are, are quite fascinating. And I think what we have to do is dive into a little bit of this, the pain cell factors. So when we think about the cells in our nervous system that are important for pain, one, so one is the neuron. So the nerve cell is the neuron. And we also have non-neuronal cells that are really important. They're called glial cells. And glial cells are really important to the maintenance and function of the neuron. We talked about this in a previous podcast. So they help maintain the homeostasis within the, the nervous system. The other thing they do is they secrete these powerful, powerful pro-inflammatory mediators called cytokines or chemokines. How I've been reminded to, to think about this is to think about how they interact is that think about it as a train station. So think of the neuron and the cell body as the train station, the axon as the train track, and the glial cells are passengers that are jumping on and off. And there are millions and millions of different types of glial cells. So these glial cells jump on the axon. What they do is then they start to excrete these very powerful pro-inflammatory mediators called cytokines or chemokines. And then they start to influence uh, downstream at the terminal. And this is where these neurons synapse with each other. So we start to see, depending on the information or why they are uh, becoming um, active. So normally uh, we can get that upregulation, but over time, if it doesn't shut off, we start to see changes that are significant. And we call this sensitization. There is some literature that's actually looked at low back pain where you actually get a downregulation. So there has been some connections to neurodegenerative and neurocognitive disorders, especially in uh, low back pain. So the changes that happen at the terminal are called neuroplasticity. So this is really the basis of uh, sensitization. So how would that look? So a patient gets a trigger for pain they get the glial cells that get activated. You get an inflammatory response. And what happens then is that homeostasis as tissue heals uh, is maintained and the pain resolves. But if these glial cells become dysregulated, we start to see that sensitization or that upregulation. Another term is called pain amplification. We start to see the changes happening at the terminal, which is called pain chronification the patient begins to lose that nociceptive circuitry input we talked about in uh, last week's podcast, and we start to see the higher learning circuitries take over, and then we get ongoing pain. Because of the glial cell role and how important it is, many scientists actually argue that chronic pain is really a gliopathy and not a neuropathy, that the role of the glial cells are probably more important than the neuron, even though ultimately the neuron is where we start to see some of the changes. So if we apply that principle to 
glial cell dysregulation, we can actually look at the interface between the nervous system and our immune response. So there's this really cool therapy that, or a theory that we talked about previously called the two-hit hypothesis. And uh, this is by Freebeck in the cell neuro, neurosurgery uh, 2014. I always think about this the same way I think about antibiotics. It just makes the most sense to me. So when I put somebody on Bactrim for a urinary tract infection, the infection gets better, the patient does fine. Patient might come back again with another urinary tract infection. I put them back on the antibiotic. And then what happens is they break out in a rash. So their immune system has been sensitized to the uh, antibiotic. The same thing can happen with pain. So how you figure out uh, what uh, may have contributed to the pain, and this is where it might be very helpful for the patient to explore some of this. It doesn't mean that they have to go back and fix their past, but sometimes understanding our past helps us to write the endings that we want. And that's some of the work around Dr. Brene Brown. And uh, I think she does some great work if you're ever interested in looking at some of her work around trauma, childhood trauma, as well as the other pieces in infertility in women, which is kind of interesting. The question I always ask patients when I'm seeing them with chronic pain in particular is when did pain become persistent in their life? About 60% of the patients can kind of tell you that when that happened. Most patients really can't put a finger on it. They tell you that it came on gradually. But if you get a patient who is, you know, 65 years old sitting in front of you and they tell you with such clarity that their pain became persistent at the age of 13 when someone pulled a chair from them, what's important is to look at, so I would call that the second hit. So that's the disruptive pain experience. What we then need to do is to assume or, or uh, make, make the uh, correlation that the sensitization within the pain system happened before that. So what happened in that individual's life before their pain became persistent? And this is where you sometimes can explore things with the patient. So it is quite fascinating, the two-hit hypothesis. Drug factors that can contribute to sensitization. I mean, we talked earlier about opiate analgesics. There is actually some literature looking at immunotherapies for cancer as well. And if you think about it, here is a treatment trying to harness the immune system to fight a cancer. But sometimes you can actually see glial cell upregulation, and these patients will get into some significant pain. So it can be a complication of the immunotherapy, just like with the opiate analgesics, it's a complication. All right. So that, to me, is really, really helpful. So when you're trying to engage a patient, though, around the pharmacotherapy, so say if you're trying to get a patient to maybe challenge their opioid use or to maybe go into a taper, one of the strategies that I use is to approach it from the perspective of not assuming that the patient is using their opioid to get high. Once you kind of make that comment, the patient is going to totally disengage with you. My conversation for patients who are using opiates medically always starts, you're using your opioid for pain. Does it do anything else for you? And the reason I ask that question is that for some brains, and remember we talked about this uh, last week, is that they can get this energy or this euphoria. Now, for patients who are using it for pain, they uh, don't like to think about it as an euphoria. In fact, what they'll often say to me is that, well, it gives them energy. And one patient in particular says, well, it gives me energy and I just don't have to think about my pain. So that's an important thing to, t to hang on to when you're trying to talk with patients about tapering and also some of the concerns around the medication. 
you can apply anything else to this too, conversation. So, you know, how does cannabis help you? Um, how do benzodiazepines help you? So this is, becomes part of the conversation. So you take it to the next step. So 100% of people, when they go on these medications, will develop tolerance. So tolerance means that our body needs more and more to get the same benefit. So the benefit for the patient would be the benefit of pain, but also the benefit of energy so I can get my work done. 100% of people will develop dependency. Dependency is not addiction, even though people who have addiction need to be dependent. But people who are using opiates for pain or medically are also dependent, but they don't have addiction. So dependency just means if I pull that medication away, the patient's going to experience withdrawal. And what withdrawal will feel like to that patient is that they have more pain and they feel like a piece of poop. Now, this becomes really important, especially when you're using short-acting opiates only. And many times these patients are not sleeping. And so what often happens is they're coming back to the uh, prescriber and saying, look, I can't sleep at night. I need something for sleep. And this is where the benzo starts to get added in. So it's really important to have a frank conversation with a patient around tapering. And I will tell you, it's almost impossible to taper a patient on short-acting opioids if they've been on them for a long time. It's very difficult, and primarily not because the patient won't be motivated, but their hardwiring will be really cued into the withdrawal piece because of the tolerance and the dependency. And for the patient, it will feel like life and death. And it's important for us to recognize that a patient who's experiencing withdrawal doesn't necessarily mean that they have addiction. It's really important. A very small percentage of patients will develop addiction between 9 and 11%. And we talked about this before, but addiction is a life-threatening complication of a substance being used in a very vulnerable brain. So whose brain is vulnerable? Typically, it's people who are young. 90% of all addiction will happen under the age of 35, 85% under the age of 18. So addiction needs time. It needs repetition, and it needs that vulnerable brain. The other thing that puts a patient at risk besides that young brain is the reward that we talked about with respect to the mesolimbic uh, system and the reward system. So those short-acting opioids are extremely reinforcing, and that brain learns very quickly. It's one of the reasons why in patients we need to minimize the uh, parental opioids especially in that perioperative patient, because it can be very difficult sometimes to stop. It's appropriate for a certain period of time, but eventually when the patient's eating and drinking, they should be shipped over. Now, what's fascinating too is that when we look at opiate use disorder, the risk factors for, for patients who develop chronic pain are very similar in terms of looking at adverse childhood experiences. That's a lot of information, but it was kind of fun to do that and pull it together. The data and the science around pain and substance use disorder is fascinating. And we are really starting to understand the interfaces between the two. But it's so important to not stigmatize patients who are using opioids for pain who don't have a substance use disorder. It's really just about managing risk, just like I would with an anti-clotting drug, just like I would with any other high-risk pharmacotherapy. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, empower the patient to look at whether or not these are short-term gains for them and maybe help them find more long-term gains that are going to help them live with their complex illness. So we'll stop there. Great spending the, the day with you, a few hours, I should say. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.